0: when you're trying to take on something new, it's gonna come at a large cost, both mental and physical a lot of times. Remember I talked about there's a limited pool of resources to adapt. So if I'm out here training for a marathon, but then I'm also trying to do this big work project and also trying to establish this new budget. Well, those are three big areas that the brain is having to like focus, all pulling resources. And so if you're trying to really focus in on one of them, I need to reduce areas of stress outside If I can reduce areas of stress outside the training facility, I can raise the level of stress inside the training facility. The same thing here. If I can reduce the level of stress in these other components of my life, I can focus in on this one and be able to adapt to it. Hello and welcome.
1: I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Dr. Chris Morris is the Director of Performance Science for the University of Kentucky's Athletics Department. In this episode, we take a deep dive into what stress is and how to create the conditions for long-term adaptation so that we can be more productive, efficient, and live happier lives. If you find today's podcast valuable, go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up for my high-performance newsletter, in this newsletter, I provide you valuable resources and information to help you pursue audacious goals, thrive in uncertainty, and live in a healthy and fulfilled life. But now, it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Chris, a lot of people are under stress right now for a host of different reasons. Is stress a bad thing?
0: No, not necessarily we need stress. We need stress to adapt. Without stress, we would never grow. I mean, in our world and performance, we intentionally impose stress on our athletes to make them more resilient by gaining more muscle or strength or speed. And that carries over to even mental stress, right? We want to put people in situations of adversity that allows them to grow uh, as humans it's it's the balance of stress that we kind of we focus in on there has to be an optimal stress application with the optimal amount of recovery there if you accumulate too much stress that's when you see things start to spin out of control when the body can simply just doesn't have the resources to overcome and adapt then the body is forced to then pick what adaptations it wants to choose and often it will maladapt in certain situations and it doesn't end up being a good thing for a lot of people. So it's, it's more about the, the appropriate amount of stress and the ability to cope and recover.
1: So biologically speaking, what is stress?
0: I think a lot of people are confused when we say stress, they immediately want to go to mental stress. Oh, I'm stressed. Right. And when we're talking physiologically, anything that causes the body to deviate outside of homeostasis or any time it, it causes, it to activate these, um, we call them regulatory systems. So let's just say your blood glucose drops, right? You feel nauseous, your body's trying to figure out, I got to bring blood glucose up. That's a stress. It's taking something outside of the body's comfort zone. And then we have to spend resources of our body to kind of make sure that comes back up to baseline. Well, every time that we do that and we tap into it, it pulls away resources from other things that we could be adapting to. So, w- when we talk about stress, we have to kind of reframe it into that anything that deviates us away from our baseline is a stress to the body, and the body inherently wants to be as efficient as possible right it doesn't want to use those resources it doesn't want to have a huge cost that's why when we stop training the body gets rid of muscle right well if you're not going to use this this is a stress to us we're going to get rid of it so reframing how we think of what stress is i think is really important when you when you consider all things that stress us you going outside in the cold without a coat is a stress to the body and it's the same stress as you Coming up on a work deadline and your body is having to use those same resources to kind of deal with that. It all comes from the same pool of stress resource.
1: So physical stress is one thing, psychological stress is another thing. You used a word there, adaptation. In the world of science, like that's a that's a critical word. Like, what does that mean? Like break that down for us a little bit.
0: So an adaptation is anything the body does that is useful for the organism down the road. So I'm going I'm to, physical is easy, right? I come into the weight room, I lift a weight that taxes the body and the body's like, wow, that was really hard and I've created muscle damage. If you're going to do this again, I need to be more resilient. So it says, all right, I'm going to go in there and build muscle. So that's an adaptation that was useful for the organism for a future stress down the line. Like it doesn't want to have that stress again. On the emotional side, let's just say you're going through a rough spot and you're working through that. Your brain is trying to figure out coping mechanisms and sometimes they're good and sometimes they can be bad, depending on how we do that. And it's everything is designed to relieve that stress. So let's just say students have a paper coming up. Well, we can procrastinate and the stress is going to build up and then we finally kind of get that paper done. But what we start to realize with students is if we, hey, we knock out like a page here, a page there, and a page there. Like, the mind has made an adaptation, has learned a new skill to handle stress of writing a five-page paper more efficiently versus waiting to the very end, letting the stress build up so much that it becomes debilitating. You know, I think marriage is another one, like conflict, right? Communication, it's, um, (laughs) you know... It's one of those things is like, as as you're learning to be with a person, it's an adaptation you make. Well, I know that that certain sentence or phrase really upsets my other person. And so therefore, I have learned not to say that. Honey, how does this make me look? Mm. I remember last time I said that, it created a bunch of problems. So you can think of all the things the brain is doing, the adaptations it's making from physical to mental, emotional. It's all designed to lower the levels of stress. And then we talk about maladaptations. It's when we get into, are you coping with stress by going out and grabbing a blizzard because it makes you feel good temporarily and it temporarily reduces that stress. We're going to grab a drink or we're going to do something destructive. So, you know, they talk a lot about that and the power of habit is like the, the stress is not going away and the outcome is not going away. We have to reduce it. But that kind of like in between how you do it is the only thing that we really have control over. So
1: there's if we got all these different types of stress, there's physical stress there's psychological stress and you start looking at this and you start stacking these things on top of each other. You can start to go, wow, like I'm like a stress machine and uh, maybe somebody told me that before, but like when you start looking at, I want to deliberately take on something so that I can grow. And let's just start, let's move away from the physical for a minute. Like I want to learn a new skill set or I want to lean into like both of you and I got our doctoral degrees and that was a very stressful period of time. When you decide to lean into stress, like what are you thinking about to make sure that you're adapting and that you're not maladapting?
0: Right. So I think for a lot of people, when they try to take on something new, we could call it dissertation, or we could call it diet, whatever you want to do is we take on stuff that is overwhelming. And a lot of times, if we try to do too much, we lose our motivation. So It's like, you know, I'm 100% in to this, and I'm going to do it. And the first day that I fail, I just kind of give up. Right. And you know, what I've learned, like with our dissertations, right. Is like, you can't just sit down and start writing, right. You just can't just go at it. Like it has to be very intentional blocks that were okay. I'm going to try to get this done right now. And it's, it's, sequential, right. Part of me in the learning process of what works for me, and it's all individual because what works for you is not going to work for me and vice versa. But it was creating these like small victories. It's like, okay, I'm going to sit down for an hour and I'm going have this, I'm going to get it done. And I did it and it felt good. I'm gonna build on that. Because otherwise, if I just sit down and I don't get much accomplished and I can get discouraged, then it becomes overwhelming to the point I don't feel like I can do it. And so those are kind of the pathways that we we take when we're trying to learn a new skill. I think for a lot of people, it's just trying to dissect that into into like smaller components and then building on that as it becomes easier.
1: So what are the things that can support you know, like for me, you know, my research was in sleep, right? But like if somebody wants to take on something new and difficult and hard, what are the things that they need to be doing in the background to make sure that they can consistently pursue that difficult thing without burning out? Right. I mean, that's the ultimate thing. Like, let's do something hard, but let's not burn out in the process.
0: Exactly. Well, I, don't know. I feel like a lot of times when we start talking burnout is when you're trying to take on something new, it's going to come at a large cost, right? Both mental and physical. A lot of times, remember I talked about, there's a limited pool of resources to adapt, right? So if I'm out here training for a marathon, but then I'm also trying to do this big work project and also trying to establish this new budget. Well, those are three big areas that the brain is having to like focus all pulling resources. And so it, if you're trying to really focus in on one of them, and then I've always said this, I need to reduce areas of stress outside. And, and, and ours is if I can reduce areas of stress outside the training facility, I can raise the level of stress inside the training facility. Same thing here. If I can reduce the level of stress in these other components of my life, I can focus in on this one and be able to adapt to it. Because otherwise, we're going to start getting overwhelmed because as I'm working on trying to develop this, then I'm also trying to do that this you can't do a lot of things simultaneously the brain's not designed to do that to begin with so it's more about like okay if this is my focus i'm going to dedicate my time and resources here while trying to reduce areas of stress out here so someone that's under a lot of stress it's it's more about let's identify what is our most dominant need at the time so, of course, I want to work on my budget because I think it's going to make me happier, but I'm also not getting a lot of sleep and my you know eating habits are poor. Well, the budgetary thing can be if you're way out of control, but like my health is so far away and I'm not sleeping, like none of, it's going to inhibit all those other things that I'm trying to do. So it's like, all right, I'm going to focus on just sleep. I don't want to fix that because that's probably the most important. And you know this more than anybody. If I can fix my sleep, the, the cascade of things that kind of follow that are beneficial. It's going to help me focus when I do try to, you know, help my butter. It's going to help me focus when I am trying to improve my diet, but I'm going to focus on this. And then once that it's just like the brain, right? We talk about the most dominant, the dominant theory. Like once the brain realizes that dominant threat's gone, it moves on to, it's a hierarchy, right? I'm going to move on to the next thing and keep working down that list, but you can't do it all at the same time. And the brain can't do it all at the same time. So what are
1: some of the habits that you've adopted to be able to take on more at work, because uh, I mean you you're always I mean you're you're a strong person, you exercise hard, you're always taking on difficult projects and new things. So what are the like what does your life look like? and how does that like how does that allow you to take on stress?
0: Right. Well, I mean, the fitness and the and the diet piece, you know, just like anything, they're really hard in the beginning, and now it, it's kind of second nature for me. So and it just becomes a priority in my life. So I know that for me, personally, if I don't get those things in, it, it's a cascade of things that kind of then I get kind of anxious because I didn't get my workout in and I'm not eating right because then I don't feel good. So those are two really big things on my priority list and I prioritize them every day. It's almost I write them into my schedule. I am going to, it's like I have a meeting, right? I block that time off. That's my time. But there's been a couple of projects right now that I'm working on that's really forced me outside my comfort zone. Obviously, my doctorate's in, in exercise physiology, but I'm trying to learn you know these data management, and computer science things. and it, it's really intimidating because I'm seeing code. I don't know what code is. And so it's like, all right, Chris, let's just break it down into these small components. And I use a focus planner only because it, it kind of helps me digest, like here's my long-term goals, here are my smaller goals, and here are my daily big three. Jason Cummins at UK, uh, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, we overestimate what we can do in a day and underestimate what we can get done in a week. And I find that to be so true as like, oh, I'm going to do this, this, and this all today. And I might get like maybe one of them and then I kind of give up. But if I just break those things down, like consistently hit these small goals in a week, I've created this, you know, huge productivity. But then I, you know, I fall back into travel. I can get this done in a day. Well, it never really happened. So it's more about just creating these small victories and goals. It's like that checklist manifesto. It makes me yeah. feel good. I did this, and just knowing in my back of my head that it might seem insignificant and small, but it's pushing me towards that long-term goal. Hmm. You know.
1: So, you know, we talk about diet and exercise. I think that one of the issues a lot of people have with losing weight or or just having a good body composition is that stress in other areas of their life are inhibiting them from losing weight or feeling better. I know you probably have some some thoughts on that. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, and that kind of goes back to coping mechanisms as well. A lot of people use food, you know, foods that are are good for, like well, good. Um I don't like to use the word good food and bad food. Foods that aren't necessarily optimal for weight loss mm-hmm. are often foods that we consume when we have high stress days because it makes us feel good temporarily. So I think people get revolved around this trap of, okay, I'm trying to lose weight and I've had a stressful day and I slip up in my diet. And so I consume this little thing and then I feel bad about myself and my heart. Well, my day's gone now. Anyway, might as well have pizza for dinner because I've sacrificed for the last week and, And so it creates this kind of like dangerous cycle of stress, coping mechanisms, failure, and the scale. People often attach themselves to the scale; it's not moving, and then they just kind of give up. And the scale is really, really tricky. And you and I have had those conversations. Like, it's not the best measure; it's not the most valid measure for changes in body fat, right? Because I could be gaining muscle, and the scale doesn't drop, and then then I lose motivation and hope. But it's a vicious cycle of not being able to handle the stress out here because all of our resources are going to here. And then my motivation to keep adhere to my diet starts to drop because I can't manage this piece of stress. Mm. And oftentimes that's why you see meditation starting to float into like these weight loss strategies. And, you know, sleep is becoming a huge component of weight loss because now we're starting to see the effects of lack of sleep and our and people wanting to grab those like really fast acting carbohydrates. It's just if I can't fix these other areas in my life, and it's going to be very difficult to try to focus in on diet.
1: So, what are some of the like well, you just mentioned meditation? And I have a couple other things I want to dive into. But like, what are your thoughts on meditation mindfulness? You know, the practice of mindful meditation and its relationship to stress.
0: Love it. I mean. You know, you know me for a long time, and you know that meditation, whether that's headspace, calm, whatever you want, whatever avenue you take, we know that the science is really, really good on the structural changes that occur in the brain, specifically at the amygdala. The amygdala being like your your little alarm center when things right. things it kicks on. And so, what we know with meditation is that it allows a stronger connection of your frontal lobe to the amygdala. So those two have a very direct connection. The frontal lobe is responsible for like emotional control, impulse control, problem solving. And so when we strengthen the frontal lobe, we can tell the amygdala, hey, calm down. Mm. So what may have triggered us or stressed us before doesn't activate those centers anymore. Uh, and I think you know, 2020 is a really good case study year when we see and I don't want to go political, but let's just say whatever political party you're affiliated with, when you saw a friend post something of the other political party, it kind of got to you, right? Mm-hmm. It activated your amygdala. And I had a, it, it did me a couple of times, but I'm like, wait a minute. Like, that's not a threat to me. Like, that, that should not be activating a center that's responsible for activating stress, right? And, and I have to tell myself, like, was that little piece of stress worth not getting an extra couple reps on my bicep curls? No, I'd rather get those <laughs> reps. I don't want to waste my, my adaptation resource on seeing someone post about something that has nothing to do with me. But the meditation piece, what it allows us to do is like, hey, calm down. That's not a threat. It allows for you know a better interaction for the frontal lobe to tell the amygdala. So basically it raises your stress activation threshold. So what used to stress you doesn't do it anymore. And over time, it ends up becoming almost subconscious. Like you don't activate those stress centers and the less stress that or the less resources that I'm using for stress, I can push them towards other things. And that means my diet adherence could go up because I'm handling stress better. Now I'm not kind of getting into that, like pool of resources. What about things like uh, float, like floating? Good. I mean, anything. Like we're, why we're does activating. float work? Like
1: in your opinion, I have my own opinions, but why do you think flotation works?
0: It's not as clear as meditation. We know that it's uh, an activator of the parasympathetic nervous system. We know that it takes you back to a um, kind of like a womb experience. It really just allows us to become, I mean, it's sensory deprivation, right? It basically shuts everything off and allows the body to kind of completely reset. And I think what we're doing is we're activating our breaks more, just like meditation, we're activating parasympathetic nervous system. That way the gas isn't as sensitive and it just allows the time, the body to really kind of get in those deep states of parasympathetic activity, which we need to be in parasympathetic activity to recover. And 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 it's a training mechanism. The more times I train my parasympathetic nervous system,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. the easier it is they're going to push that break when stress actually applies on the other end.
1: Would you talk a little bit about the the break and gas concept?
0: Right. So we have two two nervous systems, in the auto nervous system. We have our sympathetic, which everyone knows is fight or fight. And then we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which you can call rest and digest. I like to say rest and recover. There has to be a balance between the two. Anytime I push the gas, when that stress or whatever caused it to activate is over, the body has to be able to push in that break to bring everything back down what we see is with a lot of people that are constantly pushing on the gas, Mm -hmm. brake starts to get harder to kind of push in and work. And so they stay in this kind of like gas pedal pushed in mode all the time. If you can't undo that, if you can't pull off the gas and push on the brake, Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. If you're gas, I mean, if you're in a car and your gas pedal is pushed in all the time, what's going to happen? You're going to run out of gas. Yeah, It's going to run out of quicker. We have to be able to kind of slow that down. The body you know, as we're younger, does that really well. We have good autonomic balances. All right, I'm going to go out for a run. When you stop running, brake pushes in and starts the recovery process, brings heart rate back down, starts putting things back where they need to go and we recover. But as we we become into adults and we pick up more and more stress and our adaptation reserve decreases as we age, Mm -hmm. then people have a much harder time getting that gas pedal to, to release and the brake to push in. So we introduce things like Meditation and floating and things to really kind of force parasympathetic nervous activity increase, so it kind of brings us back in balance. So, yeah, you 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 have to have that kind of optimal gas and brake. And on the flip side, it's like we don't want to be too parasympathetic, right? Right. Because there's going to be times that we need that gas, and it's easy in. Athletics, but there's going to be times where we need to have sympathetic to kind of bring us up to optimal level arousal to get the task done. Like it, it's this fine balance of, again, stress, recover, stress, recover. And I want those systems to be really in tune.
1: I think about this a lot because I think that people right now, especially with social media, it pushes you into that emotional mindset. And I think the more people spend time on social media, on these digital platforms which are engaging the amygdala because what you see visually causes you to respond emotionally that your mm-hmm. people are becoming more sympathetic dominant.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, gosh, I read a book recently called The Coddling of the American Mind and it, and it talks a lot about that stress. Social media makes it way too easy for us to block off, block out things that are displeasing to us. Like, oh, that person posted about X, unfollow. Mm. unfollow, unfollow, unfollow. So what you do is you create a community of bias. And so now when we're in the real world and it comes up, well, it it triggers an emotional response because we're not used to being able to handle. So remember when I talked about, you have to have adversity to learn how to cope with it, to learn how to grow and move on. So like people are always going to disagree with you. And I think what you're seeing with this age and generation of kids that have grown up with social media is, we've sheltered them from things that are disturbing mentally, emotionally, and they get into real world environments where they're thrust into situations where someone's going to disagree with them. And well, they've never learned how to deal with that because they've been sheltered emotionally and it triggers a, uh, a basically an attack on them. We call them microaggressions when the intent was never to be that and realistically what, you know, what was the amygdala designed to do? It was designed to, to get us up when we were being chased by a predator or, you know, that's a legitimate threat. Someone posting something on Facebook about a political thing should not be a threat to your way of life in the grand scheme of things. But our mind and our perception has taken us to that place. And I think that's why you're starting to see levels of anxiety and depression and suicide among teenagers really starting to kind of take off is they can't handle, it, it's overwhelming for them. Mm. Like they simply just can't handle that amount of stress.
1: So how is that changing the way that you think about raising your daughter?
0: Huge. Great quote in that book. It's, don't prepare the road for the child, but prepare the child for the road. Mm. You can't shelter your kids and take care of everything and try to guard their emotions. And you're starting to see this like participation trophies and it's okay, you did your best and, you know, here's your award. Like, we have to be able to show kids when something doesn't go their way that, okay, if you don't like the outcome of what happened, let's figure out a way to get better mm-hmm. so you can. Let's let's work through this together. My big thing for Maddie was always going to be, uh, I want her to know that someone, the election told us this year, 50% of people are going to disagree with you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that's just life. And so when you go into a situation, you need to be able to argue constructively with them without emotion and with logic and understand when people disagree with you, it's not a bad thing. And you're more than likely you're never going to be able to change their mind. So,
1: and then also maybe you don't want to change their mind. Maybe you, I think what you just said there is really powerful because there's something to be said for actually listening and saying, maybe I need to change my perspective. Forget about politics. I'm just saying in general, you should be able to enter a dialogue and not get overheated and actually try to sit back and, and think on what's happening and go, huh. And I think, we, like you said, we've gotten so
0: emotional,
1: it's hard to have really constructive conversations because now it's, conce- it's perceived as conflict.
0: Exactly. It's really interesting because when we think about differences of opinion, those have been shaped and molded over years and years and years of experience. And their experience is gonna be completely different from what my experience, and that's how we establish our values and beliefs, what we've kind of encountered. And and you can take any issue that we're facing today and and someone's opinions are gonna be shaped by, and and I'll give you an example, and and it's not really political, but with with Maddie, we tried so hard for Maddie, and I remember we had an ultrasound and a little tiny, tiny dot on the screen and there was a tiny little flicker. And that was Maddie's heartbeat. Mm. And for me, that struck, like, because, I mean, we've been trying so hard. Like, you know, a, a lot of things kind of went into that. And that little flicker was a heartbeat. And that same, that same flicker is the same heart that's beating in Maddie's chest. So that's a huge value statement to me because of an experience that I had that becomes somewhat emotional. So when we start talking about pro-life abortion, like, that kind of gets me, you know, but I have to step back and say, Hey, that's my value property. That's my value statement. You know, your experience can be completely different and that's okay. But you know, this is kind of where I'm at mm-hmm. just because I'm right. doesn't mean you're wrong and we need to stop getting overly emotional about things that, you know, are not dominant threats to our way of living. You know, mm-hmm.
1: I think that's, that's the, that is to me what all of this stuff sets you up for is like, you know, the physical, the psychological training, it sets you up to be somebody that's a good human being and they can like live and cope in a world where there's differing opinions and it can like, can bring some civility to the situation. Like, to me, that's what it's all about, like being able to engage one human to another. And if we continue down the path that we're continuing down right now, I'm really scared about like how people, like you said, not to be able to handle stress but communicate with one another in a real way you know, this past year, I think it's been, it's been a reflection of a lot of the things that have been brewing beneath the surface. And, I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that personal story right there. But like, we need to have like people talk about empathy, but empathy can't happen unless you're in control of your own system. That's why one of the, my passions personally is helping people actually lean into stress. Instead of Mm -hmm. avoiding stress, because that's the thing, like all I've heard for the past 15 years, 20 years is reduce stress, stress reduction techniques. It's like stress. I like Huberman's definition of it. It's like it's a continuum of alertness to calmness. It's it's Mm -hmm. still on the continuum. You just want to be able to move where you are and be in control of it. Yep. I think that's that's very, very important for us to keep in mind as we approach this, because stress isn't going to go away. Like the 2020, this was a year to like, and it's going to, I don't know how much longer we're going to be in this, but it's not Mm -hmm. going away. And it's going to come back again in a different form. I'm not saying disease, but something in everybody's life is going to come back. That's going to be soul crushing. And hopefully this past year has taught people or they've sought out ways to be able to train themselves up and then be prepared in the moment to handle it and endure.
0: Yeah. And one of the biggest lessons I took away from 2020 is um, it's perception, Mm. right? Yeah. We're in a pandemic. We're having to make sacrifices. We're having to change the way that we live our life. But at the end of the day, I've got a roof over my head. I've got food on my table and I've got my daughter and, you know, family. And, you know, when you kind of ground yourself to that, about how fortunate we really are to be where we're at in the United States and not a great country we have compared to some other places, it really says this, it's, it's a road bump, but it's not, it's not that it's not going to be the end all be all for us. Like I still have the most important things in my life and we're healthy and we're happy. And so I think as long as you can anchor yourself to some level of gratitude and perception, it really helped. That's the biggest thing that has helped me when you start to kind of get overwhelmed with all this stuff. Okay. What's going to happen here? It's like, well, we'll get through it. You know, and as long as we're happy and healthy, that, that kind of brings that gas pedal back and that brake back in and kind of shuts down the amygdala. But, you know, that's perception is huge, I think, for a lot of people. It's not the stress that kills us. It's our reaction to it. My favorite Hanselie quote. So, you know, we're always going to have stress. How you handle and deal with it and cope with it is is what's going to be the biggest predictor of health.
1: You know, something interesting, I know this may be a little... Off topic, but you know, with social distancing and everything right now, in different, you know, I just moved from Virginia to Texas, two totally different states and how things are being handled. But one commonality that I saw people are being kinder to each other in public. Like I'm walking down, everybody's walking now, right? Like, so when the pandemic mm-hmm. happened, it hit and everybody's locked down, like our neighborhood is like, was like one big circle, became a big walking track. People I didn't know would just wave at you when they saw you. Or you'd be walking and somebody in a car would drive by and they would just wave. That didn't happen before that. I moved to Texas and I'm starting to see the same thing. People are just a Mm -hmm. little bit more polite. And I think what has happened is, is we're valuing other people because now you see the sanctity of life. like It is impacting everyone. This isn't a a class thing. This isn't a socioeconomic issue. This isn't a race issue. This is like a human issue. And I don't know. It's just a, it's just something I've been noticing. I think people also are craving human interaction. Mm-hmm. And um, the only, like I've, I've been, I've been thinking about this, like when this thing, it may be endemic, but when we kind of get to the point where everybody's like, okay, it's safe now. I'm wondering what the celebration is going to be like. Yeah, like people are going to be because we had a a Halloween, you know, Halloween happened and nobody had really gone outside. We go out for Halloween and people were like the candy was at the front of the lawn of the driveway and everybody was sitting on their porches. But like people were doing stuff I had never seen before. Like somebody was playing this like organ, other people like everybody was out and like waving Mm -hmm. and saying hi. And then like it was almost like it was like a national holiday. Because everybody yeah. had a reason to go outside. I don't know. I just think that there could be a lot of good to come out of this.
0: For sure. And a lot of that is because regardless of what's going on, we still have basic human needs that have to be met, right? There has to be a level of human interaction. Like, we, we thrive and depend on that. And when you're getting a quarantine and you remove it, like, it, it's hard for people and I think you're right. I think it gets us to value just getting outside and walking and seeing other people. And, you know, in reality, the perception of that, it, I'm not saying the pandemic wasn't, isn't that bad, but it just it gets us to value things a little bit different. Like you said, just being able to get outside and walk and breathe fresh air and see other people. I mean, I can see that in Maddie. She lights up when she sees other kids. Because I mean, when she was born it was in January, right? And COVID hit in February, mm. so we were like, all right, we're going to keep her. She was born four weeks early, so we had to kind of shelter anyway. But like, she had never seen children until May, maybe.
1: Oh my goodness! Uh,
0: when we could get her outside, and and then everyone's kind of sheltered anyway. But like when she sees kids, she just lights up. Like mm. that just shows me that a child that doesn't really have a lot of cognitive development like, when they see other people, like it brings them joy humans need that you know interaction to bring joy
1: so what do you like you're you're a reader you love research like you love knowledge what are you reading or learning about right now that's got you excited
0: so I'm all into the um I don't like using the word anti longevity I'm all into longevity right now so if I could take my 30,000 foot view of what stress is with a concept, if I can reduce stress in all areas of my life and become more efficient, then I should use less resources. And over time, it helps with longevity. So I'm really into glucose control right now, like nutritional, like what, what are things that are causing my glucose to get out of whack? Because we think about what are the most rigid constraints in the body and glucose is one them. one. It deviates a little bit. The body's kicking all those regulatory systems and bringing that back in. So if I can control blood glucose, then I'm reducing a a stress that's constantly occurring in the body, these dips and alleys and things like that. So I'm really big into identifying ways I can become more efficient and use less resources from that regulatory standpoint, like stress standpoint, whether that's including meditation, floating doing more aerobic work, increasing mitochondria, which is our ATP powerhouse, which is going to make me more efficient. Looking at how I can manage blood glucose better, hormones better, like that whole area, I think is a is an un it's not untapped. We're starting to see it kind of pop up in research of longevity is is linked to stress. Mm. And when I say stress, it's everything that attacks the body. That's why we see Metabolic syndrome is one of the biggest predictors of mortality and cancer, and you know, all these disease states. Centers the, or stress is the center of all of that. So, if I can look at ways to identify what are the areas in my life that are causing a lot of stress, both emotionally and physically, and then identify areas within my body that I can optimize to handle that stress, I think it's going to produce a really long term beneficial product. Mm. So that's what, all in on the on the research and genetics.
1: Um, I love the way that you articulated the, the term longevity because most people would probably think, when they think of this, they think of some clinic down in Florida. Nothing wrong with the state of Florida, but you know, like with like all the athlete scandals, you know, but there really is a need for it, especially now that we have stressed out populations that maybe these systems are out of whack and they're not working anymore, especially- yep. Our soldiers that have been involved in a in a war that's gone on for so long, you and I both know some folks that have come back and these are like, they just, their systems don't want to work anymore. And so right. I think being able to provide them with what their body can't create anymore can, can help them live a longer yeah. life because they've made a big sacrifice.
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think our special forces and our military population should be kind of at the the forefront of our attention with with some of this longevity stuff because they've made a huge sacrifice and both physically and emotionally. And with that population, it's really identifying, okay, what were the effects Mm -hmm. of conflict and war, both physically and mentally? And then what area do we need to focus in on? It's that hierarchy of needs, right? Let's identify the most dominant threat to them. And and so for some soldiers, it might be post-traumatic stress disorder. That's something from a regulatory standpoint that has to be kind of fixed first. So, we're really trying to do cognitive behavioral therapy. We're trying to get the parasympathetic nervous system activated because they've been so long in this heightened state of sympathetic awareness that that break's not working anymore. And so, they're always getting emotionally in the flashbacks, and you know, before you can even introduce anything, probably hormonally or physically you got to fix that Mm -hmm. because nothing's going to work downstream if we're constantly in this state of stress, right? We don't have any other resources to adapt. So, you know, with, with that population, it's, it's, it's extremely important, I think among other populations, but definitely ones that have sacrificed so much for our country to keep us safe and free. It should be kind of the forefront of our attention in terms of longevity.
1: Gotcha. So how do you measure stress? That's your, that's your area, by the way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, all my, all my research and dissertation worked around heart rate variability. And for some, some people probably understand what heart rate variability is, but it's, it's really, really, um, they may not understand the depth of what that number reflects. Cause we think about like, like a lot of people, especially remember in athletics, it's, oh, I just did a heavy training load. My HRV should decrease and it's not. They couldn't fathom that, well, what if that heavy training load was and they got a good amount of sleep and they ate really well and they adapted and HRV is stable versus the athlete that didn't do a lot of training, maybe got on a bike, but then had a test, didn't eat, and only got three hours of sleep, their HRV is low. Well, we're not accounting for all the other stressors in our life. So when we look at HRV, it has to be looked at as everything that impacts our resources and activates those stress centers. So you may not work out at all, but your HRV is low because you have high blood pressure and diabetes. That's a constant, like that's probably the most stress on the body that you can imagine is constantly trying to regulate blood sugar and blood pressure. Mm -hmm. We have to fix those things first before we can even get to a state where we're doing some training and trying to build muscle. And so the heart rate variability piece is just telling me how hard the body has to work to maintain life. And it's given a reflection of everything that a person does in a day and how well they offload and recover. So if HRV is chronically no, I know that there's a chronic stress somewhere in the system that we have to fix first before we can even add a stress somewhere else. So, you know, all these people that are in chronically stressed states at work, and then you're trying to add in an exercise program, well, you're not really gonna get the benefits necessarily of a lot of the exercise program until you kind of manage and handle the stress. Depending on what, so if you're going and doing a bunch of weightlifting and high intensity workouts where you're creating a massive stress. Now, if I go in and say, let's get on the bike and create stress that's going to promote parasympathetic nervous Mm -hmm. activity, that's the, that's the, that's only you can do.
1: We have got, as a culture, nothing wrong with doing CrossFit, nothing wrong with HIIT workouts, none of that stuff. It's just, it's so intense on the system. And I remember coming up in school, it's like, you know, it's either anaerobic or it's aerobic. You know, it's either this yes. or it's that. And then it was like, no, wait a second. All these things are happening in concert. We got so far away from doing aerobic work because it meant you were slow. It meant, you know, but that sit when you train in those heart rate zones, it literally pushes your body into a state of like it wants to relax. And there's so many amazing mm-hmm. effects on the, on the heart, on the cardiovascular system, on the periphery, on the ner- nervous system. And it's really our bodies are designed to be aerobic monsters, you know, for most of us, I mean, because walking and all that kind of stuff. I'm just glad to hear you say that.
0: Well, I mean, you think about what what does the body want to be? It wants to be efficient, right? So it's going to favor aerobic adaptations nine times out of 10 versus strength and power because aerobic creates mitochondrial density. It creates better cardiovascular adaptations and it reduces the cost of just living. So if I'm creating more mitochondria, then me getting up and going to the bathroom becomes at a less cost because I have more ATP turnover, I have more powerhouse. Every person that I've ever seen with a large VO2 max has more stable HRV because they don't have these big deflections in their regulatory system because the cost of doing just normal life is not as much because they're so efficient. So
1: the everyday person that's listening to this right now,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. just give, give them a little nugget of what they should be doing. Like Dr. Chris Morris's recommendation.
0: Develop your aerobic base. And it's not to say that you can't do your strength training. It's not that you can't say CrossFit, but think about this. If if I can develop a huge aerobic base and the cost of living becomes reduced, Mm -hmm. then I can add in more strength work and more CrossFit and become a much better athlete because those don't come as a greater cost. People have a hard time because it's like, oh, this is boring. It's I'm on the bike. I'm keeping my heart rate at 120. I'm not challenging. I'm not pushing myself. But you're actually creating these adaptations that are so important. You're laying this kind of groundwork and this base work. You're building your foundation to add levels to your house. Mm-hmm. So without that aerobic base, you're just basically, you're going through CrossFit workouts and strength workouts, but you're never really getting any better because the co- you're basically just getting back to baseline because you only have enough resources. So the less, like I said, the, the more efficient that I can be in daily life, then I can start to raise the level of stress in other areas of my life. But it, it's something the American culture is, uh, and especially with the CrossFit Games, when we look at these athletes, what most people, when we look at CrossFit athletes, they are genetic freaks. They are the same as these NFL and NBA. Like they were, they were designed to do CrossFit. Not everyone's designed to do that, but we've created this mentality. If I go out and do a hero watch every day, I'm going to look and feel like that. And that's not always, that's not going to be the case for 90% of Americans.
1: And I just want to get one thing clear. You actually do a version of CrossFit sometimes, right? Yes. So So I I don't want the the user. I don't want the listeners to think that we're sitting here bashing CrossFit because we're not. We're just saying it could be anything. It could be bodybuilding it could be it's just that's just a very popular program
0: right and um and and you're right i do a version of crossfit through power athlete and and the reason why i do it is because i love it Mm -hmm. and i can sustain it and it's something i look forward to every day so if i'm choosing an exercise modality all the time that i hate i'm not gonna do it right and so this it's a level of just Wanting to do it and accountability, and you know, for me, it's what drives me, and that just goes to show you that everything is individual. If I, if I'm Gary, I'm telling you, and you hire me to take care of your fitness or or diet, or whatever, and I say, all right, you got to eat broccoli and rice and grilled chicken, and you hate broccoli and rice, and you're like, all right, Chris, I'll do it. But then a week goes by, and you're like, man, this sucks. You don't want to do it anymore, and it's the same thing for exercise types. It's going to be individual, and in what people enjoy. Because at the end of the day, it's sustainability. The ability to keep doing it over and over is what produces long-term success.
1: Like me, personally, I like doing things more on the strength-power continuum. And I had a genetic test done, and it was like, that's kind of where my gifts lie. But I can't do hypertrophy work. A ton mm-hmm. of it. Every time I do it, I get tendinitis. And then I had this genetic test done, and it said, like, I am predisposed. I'm like, no wonder I get, like, Bicep tendonitis, or so it's like. There are certain things that, like, even though we want to try to fit that square peg in the round hole, it's just not going to work. But there are fundamental underlying things that we all can do, like aerobic work. You can sit on a bike. You can, you know, I hate running. I'd rather sprint. Mm-hmm. I do jujitsu. I get a lot of aerobic work done in jujitsu. Especially the the more skilled I get, my heart rate stays down. But I just. It's something you and I have been pushing hard for about seven years now. Ironically, like 30, 40 years ago, if you look at a lot of like the early literature, it's like you've had these big, big periods of general physical preparation, but we're, we're going off of, we, I'm going to have to have you back another yeah. time to talk <laughs> about that. But um, yeah. as you look to 2021, what are you excited about?
0: Obviously the vaccine. I think that's what most people are excited about. Some light at the end of the tunnel you know, just like you said earlier, there, I think there's been some positives that have come out of 2020, like workplaces are starting to realize they don't have to be in the office in a cubicle all the time. They can be mm. at home, they can get work done. And abs. like, it's creating some mobility there for people and changing the mindset of the American culture that we don't have to work 50, 60 hours a week in an office. And I hope that that change. I hope that stays. I hope that's a, a permanent change. But I think for most people, it's, 2021 allows us to kind of get back to somewhat of a, a normalcy with our family life. Like it, it's mm. been really difficult not to see my parents the way that I want to see my parents, or be able to hug my dad or my mom because I'm afraid that you know they're at-risk populations. And so I think for us, and like you said earlier, we we need that human interaction and we need that family and we need that love and we need these these things that have been deficient in our life. And so I think I'm most looking forward to that social aspect of it. And I'm hoping, like I said, some of the things that we've learned in 2020, like gratitude and perception and, you know, those things stick and we don't kind of fall back into the American grind that, you know, work harder and that's going to achieve like bigger outcomes because we know that that's not the case. And so um, I'm optimistic for 2021. vaccines really going to push people in the right direction and get back to our normal way of life. And, hopefully we keep that gratitude and perception and it creates a better, a better human race.
1: I love it. I think it's the perfect way to end. Chris, thank you so much for coming on today. And I look forward to having you back in the future to have some more in-depth discussions about the latter, latter part of our podcast today.
0: Absolutely. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for joining me today on another episode of the blueprint podcast. If you found this episode valuable, Sign up for my high performance newsletter at www.ericquorum.com. And if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Quorum, Twitter at Eric Quorum, Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn.